Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Adjua Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to address you, our regular listeners. We know you have enjoyed the Living Proof podcast, as evidenced by the more than 150,000 downloads to date. Thanks to all of you. We'd like to know what value you may have found in the podcast. We'd like to hear from all of you, practitioners, researchers, students, but especially our listeners who are social work educators. How are you using the podcast in your classrooms? Just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcast and click on the Contact Us tab. Again, thanks for listening, and we look forward to hearing from you. This is part two of a two-part series on the sanctuary model of changing the culture of care. In the first episode, Brian Farragher discussed the principles of the sanctuary model and how the model was implemented at the Andrus Children's Center, a provider of mental health services for children and families in Yonkers, New York. Brian Farragher is a social worker and the executive vice president and COO of the Andrus Children's Center, and over the past eight years has worked closely with Dr. Sandra Bloom and the staff of the Andrus Center to implement the sanctuary model. Mr. Farragher recently co-authored the book entitled Destroying Sanctuary, The Crisis in Human Service Delivery Systems. In this episode, Mr. Farragher discusses the Sanctuary Institute developed two years ago to offer training and consultation to other organizations seeking to implement the sanctuary model. Mr. Farragher describes the process as transformational. Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, spoke with Brian Farragher by telephone. You just mentioned the commitments, one of which is the commitment to growth and change. Can you say something about some some of the other commitments? The commitments are really about, I think, going back to the issue of trauma, that there are seven commitments. So there's, there's open communication, democracy, social responsibility, social learning, emotional intelligence, nonviolence, and growth and change. And those commitments really are what we see as sort of the antidotes to trauma, that people who, are, who have experienced trauma, there's a lot of secrecy involved in that. So, you know, please don't, you know, you know, this happened, but you can't tell anybody. There are all secrets around sort of traumatic experiences and abuse. Democracy really speaks to the issue of power. I think in an organization where you're treating people who have been victims of abuse of power, mostly, you have to be very careful about the use and abuse of power in the organization. Uh, So democracy is really an antidote to sort of abuse of power. Social responsibility, I think, is it goes back to the issue I was talking about in terms of, you know, it's very easy to say, well, you know, I'm not significant, you know, it doesn't matter what I do, uh, and it really does. So I think the fact that everybody has a responsibility to each other in the organization, both kids and staff, you know, that we're all here to help each other is very important. The social learning is what we talked about before, is really learning from your mistakes and doing something differently 
you know, if you're not getting the result you're looking for, then do something different. Learn from that and then and change. Emotional intelligence is really everybody in the organization has to manage their emotional world. And we make lots of bad decisions in our lives when we get overwhelmed by our emotions. Staying emotionally intelligent, emotionally mindful is really important to good decision making. And all of these sort of relate to each other. And then nonviolence is sort of a no-brainer that I mean I think for people who have been victims of violence to have a culture that does not support you know, violence at any level is really important. And, you know, we talk about safety on a lot of different levels. And maybe I just, I'm digressing a little bit here. But what we have learned, I think, is that everybody focuses on physical safety. You know, we, you know, we have uh, lots of conversations, I think, you know, even at the national level of school violence and bullying and school shootings and all these terrible things where physical violence erupts in settings. And what we believe is that there is a social context for violence. And I think that physical violence erupts and physical safety is threatened when people feel that their emotional, social, and ethical safety is threatened. If you have an organization where people feel insignificant, where they feel dismissed, where they feel mistreated, where they feel disrespected, where they feel marginalized, the likelihood that physical violence will erupt is, is increased dramatically. So what we try to do, and you know, successfully some days and unsuccessfully others, is really try to move upstream to dealing with not just physical violence, but really when physical violence erupts, what happened on the social and emotional level? You know, did this child feel disrespected, you know, dismissed, you know, and, uh, you know, and you see that very often, you know, and it's not anything, you know, intentional very often. I mean, our children are exquisitely sensitive uh, to, you know, because they've had these terrible things happen in their lives. So they're hypervigilant. They see threat in the environments where we don't see it necessarily because that's not our orientation. And so when a staff person raises their voice or says something that they thought was funny but insulted the child or humiliated the child, physical violence erupts. And you have to, as an adult in the setting, have to say, hmm, what could I have done differently here? And it's not because you did anything terrible. It's because you have a kid who's extremely sensitive to those sort of empathic failures. And, and I think we, you know, we need to get better at that. I think not just in this organization, I think societally. A lot of these kids that we work with are carrying around some very heavy bags. And, uh, and I think we're not as sensitive to, to that as, as we should be. You have an institute that helps work with other agencies to implement this model. Can you say a little bit about how that works, about how agencies, how you work with them and what that process sure. is like? Yeah, we started this probably in probably started this in 2005, 2006 after we had worked with with Sandy Bloom for for a while. And we came up with this idea because we, you know, we thought that the way we had implemented sanctuary in our organization was extremely labor intensive. And so there were two things. One was we thought we were enamored with with the model, but also mindful that, you know, for an organization to do this it was just almost too much of a commitment. We were lucky, you know, at the point that we did this, we were, you know, we had some resource at hand and we were relatively small, but we realized it was a lot of heavy lifting. So we took sort of the lessons we learned and we packaged those into, you know, this institute. The way it works, if an agency is interested in the model, 
and implementing the model, we the first thing we do is we'll go out and just do a an organizational assessment. So we'll look at you know those issues around the commitments and self, and really see where the agency is right now. The next step is the agency sends a team of staff, and usually about five to seven people, to a five-day training at our organization. And the five-day training is really walks through a couple of things, walks through the trauma theory, parallel process, the toolkit that we use. But I think for for people who have been through it, I think it's a transformational experience. We've seen it being, it's it's really a transformation back to where we begin. We ask people to kind of think about why they got into this work in the first place. And what you end up, what people realize is that they have strayed from, you know, what they thought they were going to do, which was to really, really help people recover. And what you end up doing is, you know, you end up sort of just managing risk and setting rules and looking at spreadsheets, <laughs> you know. So what we help people, I think, do is reconnect with what's important in this work. So that team then goes back to their agency and sets up a core team. So and as I described it before, you know, a multidisciplinary, multi-level team of people who are going to help implement the model at the organization. Over the next two years, you know, two to three years, there's a bunch of things that organizations do. They they train their staff. They look at their policies and procedures and practices. They start implementing the tools that we recommend, and they begin to transform you know their organization with some help from our faculty. So we have a faculty advisor who then will help the agencies you know who are who are in this process through, you know, on-site consultation, phone consultation to implement. Over a two or three year period, agencies implement and and every agency is different. So I think it's, you know, this is not a cookie cutter kind of approach. So depending on the size of the agency, the population, you know, we've we've done this in juvenile justice facilities, we've done it in hospitals, we've done it in residential treatment centers and schools and outpatient clinics. All those places are different. They have a different flow, they have a different culture, and we've done it in different, you know, regions. So we've done it, you know, all over the country. We've done training in Australia and and in Scotland and Northern Ireland. So all those places have very different ways of looking at kids in the world and, you know, they have different value sets and so on. So what we help the organization do is then implement, you know, based on its, you know, its value system and, you know, its mandates and so on. After about a three-year period, then we we certify the agency. It's basically a certification process which looks at, you know, the agency along, most again, those dimensions of their commitments and the self-model and looks at how they're doing in terms of, you know, really delivering trauma-informed care and, and having an organization that really speaks to the to the values that we, you know, we believe are important. So that's kind of the process, um, and it, you know, it can either be faster or slower depending on the size of the agency, and, and I guess the sort of starting out health of the agency. And most importantly, I think it is about leadership. I think the the agency leadership really has to buy this. You know, it's not something that you know the other people are going to do, or it's not something that your staff are going to do. If you're not going to do it. If you're not going to adhere to these values, you should save your money. And uh, Interesting. Yeah, now that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Is that it really has to be the whole system that, that takes that on. Once you've done the three years, you then have to also look at sort of continuing to implement it as the agency grows and changes. So, 
And I think, you know, for us, that was a really, I don't want to say it was an epiphany. It's frankly, I mean, if you, if you think about it, it's kind of a duh moment. But, you know, we spent, a, we spent a lot of time when we first started implementing on staff training. And then we didn't, we didn't build it into our orientation process the way we needed to. Because we thought it was just so compelling that people would just get it out of the woodwork. So we spent a couple of years where things went really well, and then there was a little bit of a downturn because we had turned over a number of staff and we hadn't oriented them and trained them properly and in the model. So I think it is, all of these things I think is really constantly thinking about how you embed these things in the organization. But I should say that I think it is also the reasons why you don't is the reasons why you need to. And let me clarify that, is that we probably didn't build this into our orientation because it takes time and it is hard and it's a cost and we're under some stress. So it's easy to sort of say, well, it'll all work out. And because, you know, to do all that legwork and to spend those resources is, is a challenge when you're under stress. I think sometimes if everything worked the way it was supposed to, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't need to, you know, to to do sanctuary, you know, if we lived in a perfect world. And I think you know the imperfections in the world are are the things that make it hard, uh, both to to run agencies like this and also to implement any kind of model. So I think it's always being able to to keep that on the scope and listen to your staff when they're telling you it's not on the scope. So all that stuff, all those things that we've sort of built into our culture. I think help us to to right the ship faster when we start coming off the rails. And so this has been we keep coming back to this. I mean we do stray at times, but it's been we really found our way out of a lot of difficult situations, I think, because we've recommitted or we've said, geez, you know, we really have strayed away from this practice and we need to get back on it. So I think on that level I think we've remained really true to it. I don't want to say we've you know we've never, you know, stepped off the line, but I think we know where the line is and we know better now how to get back on it. Can you mention the full name of your institute? I'm assuming we'll probably have a way to sort of put some links and things there too, but some people will be sure. listening to this podcast not while they're at the web and um, they'll probably be frustrated that they haven't heard it yet. It's the Andrew Sanctuary Institute and we're in the process of rebuilding our website and so that we're hoping that will be up and running next week. So we're very close. And our web address is andruschildrens.org. And we will have like a second way of you know, getting that, which will be andrus1928.org. So we'll have, you know, either one of those will be, where right now it's andruschildrens.org. And, 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 and Andrus is spelled A-N-D-R-U-S. A-R-U-S, okay, just so people know that. Because I think that um, more and more people are getting interested in this. And I, I can't let you go without mentioning the wonderful book that you and Sandra Bloom recently wrote called uh, Destroying Sanctuary. And I was wondering if you could say a few words about what made the two of you decide to write that book and if you've been getting any feedback about it. We are uh, incredibly bad promoters. Uh, so... <laughs> So we are uh, we're probably not getting as much feedback as we might have hoped, but we probably we probably have not put ourselves out there in, in, in the way we need to either. I think we're both busy doing you know our day jobs. 
But I think the reason why we wrote it, I think, and we're we're working on a second book now, which is a follow up to that. You know, Sandy had originally written a book called Creating Sanctuary some years ago, and when we when we started working on the second book, it really the publisher felt like we really were writing two books. It was so this one was Destroying Sanctuary, which is really a conversation about what's gone wrong, sort of in mental health and human service systems. You know the and I think it puts it in the social context of economic and social forces that have really sort of chipped away at the services that really are rendered to people in need. So, and I think there's, and also I think the the overwhelming, lack of a better word, the overwhelming denial about the impact of the levels of adversity and trauma that people are experiencing and, and its impact on not just the folks we serve, but all of us. The really public health issue of, of violence in our society is really all about, we think, about childhood adversity. That that's where it begins. And that people who are injured and hurt are people who end up injuring and hurting others. That And we think, you know, that's a, it's a germ that I think is really finding its way through our, our whole society. And I think we're ignoring it. So what we tried to do in the book was really to talk about, first off, you know, the, the issues of that are affecting our kids and our families and our communities, which is violence and racism and poverty, and, and then what has been a, an eroding safety net socially that is helping people who have had, who have, you know, been victims of adversity and, and abuse actually find their way back. So I think it is... And it's been interesting, you know, I, I feel like as we better understand, we talk about in Sanctuary this notion of, you know, it's not what's wrong with you, it's what's happened to you. And I think as we've better understood that people's troubles are really social problems, not moral weakness or deficit, the amounts of support for recovery have been deteriorating. So I think, you know, we, we're finally figuring out, I think, how you help people to recover. And I think there's less and less resource to help them do that now. So, it, you know, so that's really what the book is about. It's really about the what has been a really an explosion, I think, of understanding of what, you know, what the nature of, of these difficulties are, and then a, an erosion of of the our ability to respond to them. And that's unfortunate. I think moving upstream is is essential. And I think we, if you look at even recent budget costs, what have you, kids, families, you know, the disenfranchised of people who are really struggling, I think, take it in the neck uh, most of the time. <laughs> and we pay for it down the road. I mean, you know, prison populations are exploding and healthcare is exploding. And we believe it's all tied back to the way we treat our kids. And that has to change. But when I speak to sort of schools or, you know, even, even frankly, you know, childcare centers and you, and you mentioned the ACE study, it, it's remarkable to me that, and I say, how many people have heard of the ACE study? Maybe, you know, if you're in a room full of 200 people, maybe 15 hands go up. And then you ask people if they've ever heard of bird flu. And this is the biggest public health issue we have. And I've seen very few things and even anything mainstream talking about this research, which is extraordinarily important, but it's soundly ignored. As a culture, we dissociate it. We, we don't yep. look at it. It's separate from us. Before okay. we finish, I would love to say, is there anything you'd like to add that we haven't talked about that you think is really important? The issue of trauma, and and I think there's a sort of social dissociation from 
from these things that we, frankly, we know in our heart are what's happening. I think what our intention is, and I think you know we're a little place in some ways, but we have big ideas. And this network that we're we're growing, we've now trained 200 agencies across the country and around the world. And we meet every year. We get our network together. So we're now 200, you know, agencies strong. And 17th of November, we have our network meeting in in White Plains. We bring all, many of our the agencies together that we trained. And I think what we're hoping is really that our intention is to really see what we can do ultimately to really change the face of care for kids, that this knowledge of trauma and adversity and its impact on our kids is uh, is crucial. And I think those of us who are doing this work don't fully understand that and don't incorporate those things, those, you know, that research into our into our work, we're really missing something. Our hope is is to really, you know, as I said before, this notion of sort of countering this feeling of hopelessness and helplessness is, you know, I don't want to quite say yet we're building a movement, but we're, and there are lots of other people and lots of other organizations who I think are on that bandwagon. But I think these are, we can change what we're doing. Part of the destroying sanctuary and that sort of grim message of what's happened to us, I think it's important that we always sort of maintain this notion that it can be better. That's the only way things get better. So I try to come into work every day feeling like, okay, I can, I can make a difference here with this kid, with this family, with this agency. And I think the network is really our effort to sort of make a difference on a much more macro level. And we're taking steps to do that. And that's exciting. We've worked with some big systems We've done a lot of work with New York State OCFS. We've done a lot of work with uh, the city of Philadelphia, with the state of Pennsylvania, and we've changed some of the, the issues in care at really macro levels. And I, we, we weren't thinking about doing that when we started. But, but sometimes when you're doing this work for a long time, you do have that sense of you end up feeling like you've been beat. And I think our clients really need powerful people in their lives who feel who can make them feel hopeful. And our staff need that too. And, and our industry needs that. And uh, so I think I, probably the most important thing is that in spite of all that's happened, I, you know, I think we all need to continue to feel very hopeful about what can change and, and take steps to doing that. I would say our society and world need that as well. So it's definitely the case. Well, thank you so much for, for your time. This has been really great. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Brian Fager discuss the Sanctuary Institute, which offers training and consultation to other organizations seeking to implement the Sanctuary model. If you liked what you heard, look for part one, where Brian Farragher discusses the Andrus Children's Center's own journey to implement the Sanctuary model. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time for more lectures and conversations on social work practice and research. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.